0: Thank you for listening to this gospel resource from Cornerstone Baptist Church in Wiley, Texas. Feel free to use or share this resource, but we ask that you not alter the content in any way. For more information about Cornerstone Baptist Church, please visit us at cornerstonewiley.org. Well, let's open God's Word. We're going to be looking at 1 Timothy chapter 3. We're going to be jumping ahead in our study of Timothy And for a reason, and that reason is that today, like Cody mentioned, is a day where we're going to focus in on a, a moment in history and the effect that that moment in history has upon us today. We're going to focus on the Protestant Reformation and on one man specifically and one doctrine specifically that stand out in those days. One of the themes, one of the rally cries that came out of the Protestant Reformation one that still affects us today is this idea of semper reformanda, always reforming. And there's a longer Latin phrase there that essentially says this we are reformed and always being reformed by the Word of God. So there's a reason that once a year we pause in our normal study. And we focus on these. There are only four times a year where we change our plans. And this is one of those sermons where we focus in on the Reformation to remember and celebrate the work that God did through these men and women from our past. And try to understand how the battles they fought and the doctrines that they elevated, how they still impact us today. So we're going to look at 1 Timothy chapter 3 and we're going to ask some questions and then we'll get into the subject matter for the morning. 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 14. The Apostle Paul writing to Timothy says this, I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God. As we've been studying 1 uh, Timothy, we know that that's a main theme of the book. The instruction and the ordering for the household of God. But notice the next phrase. He says... You ought to know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. This is God's Word. What does that mean though? The church of the living God is a pillar and buttress of the truth. Pillars, buttresses, these are supports, these These things are made in order to hold things up, hold up something important. But how are we to understand this phrase in relation to the church? Does this mean that the church gets to determine what is truth and then must uphold that truth to the world? Or does this mean that there is a truth from God which supersedes all other truth claims and that the church is duty-bound to her creator to uphold his truth. Which one is it? Well, this question is important for us today, no doubt, but 500 years ago, a few faithful men and women began to ask this question, and the results of their questions and their challenges truly changed the world. This coming Tuesday, October the 31st, will mark the 506th years since, a German monk named Martin Luther posted a very provocative theological paper on the bulletin board of his small town in Wittenberg. The paper that he posted there contained 95 articles of disagreement with the beliefs and practices of the Roman Catholic Church. Again, the day was October 31st, 1517, and that paper sparked a theological debate That truly turned the world upside down. And Luther's actions on that day launched what we know to be the Protestant Reformation. And here we are 506 years later, and we're still seeing the impact that his and other reformers' actions brought about. I mean, as a church, we understand ourselves to be within that stream of tradition. We are a reformed Baptist church. We see that the actions of these men, and as I've mentioned, and women, these are a blessing from God to restore the word of God and the gospel to the church of Christ. The gospel, which had largely been lost, was being recovered in the work of these men. The role of biblical authority, which had been supplanted by church tradition and flawed leadership, was being reclaimed. But this Reclamation of truth did come at a cost. If you studied the Reformation, you not only know that there are great figures that rise above others, there are great truths that were battled over, but there were also many lives lost on both sides of the debate. And as a result of this, uh, many have looked on, historically have looked on, the Reformation and the bitterness and the division that it represents as one of the worst aspects of religious instincts. A lot of secularly-minded people, when they look to history and they look to the Reformation, they want to do away with that. They want to look to another aspect of that particular time period. So why do we focus on this? Why do we put our energy into this? Why do I spend an entire Sunday sermon focusing on this particular issue? Is it even important for us today? Or we could ask the question this way, does the Reformation still matter? I believe the answer is yes. Because at the heart of the Reformation, it wasn't just a squabble over unimportant religious ideas. At the heart of the Reformation was a battle for the souls of men and women and children. The core battle of the Reformation was over how can someone truly know God and understand what is required for sinful man to be reconciled to him. The main issue at stake is nothing less than heaven or hell, the the central message of the Christian faith, which is the gospel. So the Reformation still matters for us today because we can just as easily lose our way and approach religion by focusing on our preferences or our experiences or some other newfangled idea rather than the pure teaching of the Word of God. So this morning we're going to do two things. Remember and celebrate the work of God in and through his servant, John Calvin, who was the greatest theologian of the Protestant Reformation and a faithful pastor in the church in Geneva. And the second thing I want us to do is I want us to focus on one of the key doctrines that came out of the Reformation, the doctrine of sola scriptura, which remains a cardinal doctrine for Christians today. So before we go any further, let me just pause. Let's pray together and then we'll continue to study. Father, thank you for your word, and thank you for the work that you have done through men and women throughout history to identify your word, to teach your word, to even put their lives on the line or give their lives in order that your word, the truth of your word, and the eternity-binding message of the gospel to be heard. Father, thank you for preserving this for us today, and And as we focus in on what your word has to say and what it means, and we look at it through the lens of this man and through the lens of this doctrine, Lord, I pray that you would spur us on. I pray that you would give us even deeper convictions of the need for your word to be heard. And Lord, I do pray that you would help us to understand that the soul, the the final authority in our lives and in this universe comes down to what you have revealed to us in your word. So teach us this morning, spur us on this morning, raise us up to be faithful men and women in our day as we battle against the errors that we see, but help us to be faithful to the scriptures. So use this time to accomplish your purpose uh, in the hearts of your people, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So we have two responsibilities. We're going to look at something of Calvin's life and then we're going to look at this doctrine. So let's look at Calvin's early life. Some of you might know a little bit about John Calvin. Some of you may not know much at all about him. We have a plethora of books on the Reformation. If you would like to stop by the library or see your resident librarian, Mr. Mark Ritchie, back there in the green shirt, he would point you in the direction of some good books to read and be delighted that you've chosen to do that. But a little bit about John Calvin, just so we know. John Calvin was born uh, on July 10th in 1509. Uh, he was born in a small agricultural town in France. The town was, it's a market town. The name of the town is Noyon. Um, but when, when Calvin was born, Luther was a few years ahead of him. Luther was already 25. He was already teaching in uh, Wittenberg. He was already teaching in the castle church there. Um, But when Calvin was born, there was still some time before the Reformation really got underway. So it was eight years away from Luther nailing his 95 Theses to the church door. Now we don't know that much about Calvin's early life. There's not a whole lot there. We know that his father, uh, his father's name was Gerard. He was the administrative assistant to the bishop Of Noyon, which means that John was literally born into the church. And when I say the church here, I'm meaning the Roman Catholic Church. Um, Calvin's mother died when he was very young, sometime around the age of five or six. And so uh, it was just him and his father. Uh, Around the age of 14, of course, he had siblings, but around the age of 14, Calvin's father sent him off to college, to the university in Paris, to study theology. 14. How many of y'all want to go away to college at 14? So anyway, that's what happened. And at that time, France was largely untouched by the Reformation, um, especially the University of Paris. But something happened. Five years after beginning his studies in theology, Calvin's father had some falling out with the church. We don't know exactly what happened, but we do know that his father encouraged him, instead of studying theology, I want you to go and study law instead. And so Calvin changed his major. He began to study law. In three years, he completed his law degree. But in the same time, he also um, began to study the Greek language. Um, I think it was around 1516, maybe a little, no, I'm sorry, it was earlier than that. Uh, Erasmus produced a Greek New Testament that had largely been lost to history. The the educational language of the church was Latin. And so when Erasmus produced his Greek New Testament, it became an issue for people in academia to begin to study the Greek language again. And Calvin was an absolute genius in many ways. And so he began to study theology He never stopped studying theology. Then he mastered law. In only three years, Jeremy, it doesn't take that long. He mastered law, and then he also, in that amount of time, mastered the Greek language. This man had a soaring intellect. And Calvin's love for study and his God-given intellect were easily recognizable. They set him apart from his peers. But the question on everybody's mind was, what is he going to study? Is he going to continue in theology? Is he going to continue in law? What is it going to be? Um, Well his father died, and upon the death of his father in 1531, Calvin returned to the University of Paris to once again study theology, his first and his great love. And it was around this time, 1531-1533, that John Calvin heard the gospel. And when I say he heard the gospel, I mean he heard the gospel that was being written about and preached in connection with Luther's work Um, and it completely changed John Calvin. I mean, think about it this way. All of his life, he had been taught that salvation was the result of obedience to the Roman Catholic Church's teachings and practice. The sacraments stood out as the means by which you could earn favor in God's eyes. And all of his life, the legalism of the Roman Catholic Church hid the light of the gospel of God's grace. And in this little window of time, as the Reformation begins to spread into France, the truth of the gospel began to shine, and Calvin heard it. Luther was teaching that salvation is not the result of one's work for God, but rather the result of one's faith in the work of Christ for sinners. That's a very different message. And, and, and Calvin was hearing this for the first time, that salvation from sin comes on the basis of God's grace alone, through faith alone, and in the work of Christ alone. Okay, well let me just give you his own words. He describes his own conversion and the struggle between these two ideas. He says, when this very different form of doctrine started up, not one which led us away from the Christian profession, but one which literally brought us back to its fountain, to its original purity. I was offended by the novelty, right? the the newness of it. I was offended by this. I lent an unwilling ear. At first, I confess, I strenuously and passionately resisted to confess that I had all my long life been in ignorance and error But then, this is still a quote, but then I at length perceived, as if light had broken in upon me, in what a sty of error I had wallowed, and how much pollution and impurity I had thereby contracted. Being exceedingly alarmed at the misery into which I had fallen, I made it my first business to betake myself to thy way, O God, condemning my past life, not without groans and tears, He goes on, he says, God, by a sudden conversion, subdued and brought my mind to a teachable frame. And having thus received some taste and knowledge of true godliness, I was immediately inflamed with an intense desire to make progress. So here's Calvin. He's this egghead of a guy, this genius of a student. He's got all these things swirling around in his mind and in his studies. He lost his mother when he was very young. He just lost his father. What is he going to do with his life? And then he comes into contact with the gospel. He comes into contact with the teachings of Luther, and he is completely changed by it. And it sets the course of his life. He would make progress like he prayed. He would make progress right away. In 1533, the Reformation, between the 1531 and 1533, the Reformation had finally made its way into France, specifically to the University of France, and Calvin had a friend named Nicholas Cop. All of us need a friend like Nicholas Kopp. Um, he was tasked with speaking at chapel on the university campus, and when he did, he came in and he preached a very Luther-esque sermon, Um, So the Reformation had made its way in, and it was believed, and it's still by many historians believed, that it was Calvin who actually wrote the sermon that Nicholas Kopp preached. But either way, the sermon was preached, and it just created a firestorm on campus. France was not ready for the Reformation. They didn't want this battle that was just burning down places in Germany. And so persecution resulted. People lost their lives, and Calvin, along with others, were literally forced to flee. It is said about his biography that he actually escaped from his dorm room with his blanket. He was led out of the window, and he escaped. So he's exiled at this point. Young guy, newly born again, all this information in his mind, and he is exiled from France, from his homeland, and he goes to Basel, Switzerland. Switzerland. And it was here at the age of 26. Do we have any 26 year olds in the room? You don't have to raise your hand, but just maybe you can. Uh, 26, he penned his first copy of his life's work, The Institutes of the Christian Religion. 26 years old. He addressed the work to the King of France, as you might know if you read a copy of the Institutes, which is very devotional in the way that it's written. It's a a wonderful work. If you read it, you'll know in in the introduction, the inscription usually will have that letter to the king of France. It was his intention to write it to the king and to let the king know, hey, what's going on here is not a corruption of the truth. These reformers aren't dangerous heretics. They're actually following the true Christian religion laid out in Scripture. And it was Calvin's desire that he could convince the the king of France to allow this to take place, but the king of France would have none of it. He wasn't interested. Um, In fact, he would make very public displays of his hatred at that time for the reformers. On one occasion, he lined the streets with pyres and burned 36 men who had offended the Catholic church with their Reformation beliefs. And if you know anything about the Reformation, you know this is this is a common occurrence for people to lose their lives in horrific ways over these doctrines. Calvin would later say of uh, the institutes that he, he set out to write them with the design that men might know what was the faith held by those who were being baselessly and wickedly defamed. I mean so think about that. He's trying to defend men and women who are learning, burning at the stake. That's what he's trying to do. John Piper comments on the frame of mind that he was in. He says, When you hold the institutes of John Calvin in your hand, remember that theology for Calvin could not sit idly by without some effort to vindicate the faithful and the God for whom they suffered. Piper says, I think we would perhaps do our theology better today if more were at stake in what we said the Institutes. It it literally means basic instruction. And it was designed by Calvin originally to be a very small introduction to the evangelical faith. It was published as a very small book that men could keep inside their coat pocket so that they could covertly study these doctrines. It was his aim uh, Calvin's aim to be able to convert France to Reformation theology in a very covert way. He wanted to bring the Reformation to France through sound biblical theology, primarily through his writings early on. And And after he published his first edition, he, he made a plan to go to Strasbourg, Germany. Because in Germany, obviously this is Luther land at this point, so in Germany all these Reformation theologians had gathered, and it was Calvin's desire to go and be in Germany and to spend his life studying theology and writing in a very safe place. I mean, that makes sense, right? But in the course of his making his way to Germany, he stopped over in Geneva. And in Geneva, he met another friend that all of us need to have, a friend by the name of Guillaume farel And when Calvin informed Pharrell that he was planning to go and have a quiet life in Geneva, studying and writing about theology, Pharrell actually challenged him. Actually, history tells us that Pharrell prayed that God, out loud, in Calvin's face, that God would curse his ivory tower ambitions. And he forcefully convinced Calvin to stay in Geneva and to get involved in pastoral ministry. And that's what he did. In Geneva, Calvin and Pharrell pursued reform aggressively. And at this particular time, Geneva was somewhat open to Reformation ideas. um, But very quickly they learned that they wanted a little bit of Reformation, but not too much Reformation. So Calvin and Pharrell began to preach. They began to order the ministries of the church. They began to speak out against the um, injustices and the sins of prominent men and women, particularly those on the city council who paid their salaries, they made a number of changes that ruffled the feathers of the men in those positions. And two years after being given this post of, of being a pastor, he was asked to leave. Actually, he was given three days to leave the city, or else. And that's exactly what he he did. He left. So he's exiled again, and this time he was exiled for his commitment to preaching the word of God and applying the word of God to the people within the city. So that's a little bit of a a snippet of Calvin's life. There's more to come, but I want to stop and I want us to focus on that second half at this point. Because at this point in Calvin's life, he had a series of commitments, and one of those commitments was to the authority of the word of God And he wasn't going to change that. He wasn't going to hide that. He wasn't going to put that aside and and preach in such a way or teach in such a way to tickle the ears of the audience. And that got him in trouble, as you see, in his history. But there's there's some ideas that we need to wrestle with. For instance, in 2 Timothy 3.16, we read this. We know this verse. All Scripture is breathed out by God It is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God, the woman of God, may be complete and equipped for every good work. That phrase, all scripture is breathed out by God, it means something. And this is a a powerhouse of a verse for us today. When you open your Bibles, when you read the Bible, you are hearing the very Word of God, the very words of God. The idea of this being breathed out by God is the the idea that the the thoughts and intentions of God's speech move through His vocal cords, and the Word of God is the, the, the contained revelation of God speaking to us. That's what we have in our hands. When we want to know the mind of God on a certain subject, we open the Word of God. But in Calvin's day, The Catholic Church had declared that it was the seat of authority when it came to the things of God. If you wanted to know what God had to say, you didn't open the Bible because you didn't have a Bible. You had to go to the priest, and the priest would tell you what God says. If you wanted to understand the purpose and plan of God for you, you need to ask the church. And the church had a nice little sacramental system set up. Calvin and the Reformers rejected the church's claim to such authority and rather they declared sola scriptura that scripture alone was and is the final authority because the scriptures are inspired by God they are the very words of God the scriptures never changed they never erred while men even popes were known to change their mind and err So this brave pastor, Calvin, he began to study and write and teach and publish books, which taught the Bible to common folks. By the way, if you didn't know that, back in those days, to have a Bible in your hand and to not be a minister of the church meant you were subject to being burned at the stake. So even that was an act of... Of insurrection to, to do this, but they were trying to reveal the corruption in men's hearts. They were trying to let the gospel shine through just simply in the pages of God's words, but they were also revealing the corruption within the church's teaching. And the church, the Roman Catholic church, was very angry about that. So sola scriptura means scripture alone. This is one of the key slogans that came out of the Reformation, one of the five solas of the Reformation, um, that truth is known by scripture alone. It is the final authority. It is, salvation is by grace alone. It's through faith alone. It's in Christ alone. And all of this amounts to revealing the glory of God alone, not the glory of the church. But what does scripture alone actually mean? What does it not mean? Scripture alone does not mean that there are no other sources of authority within the Christian life. History has its place. Theology has its place. But when a decision needs to be made about what is right, when a a practice is under scrutiny to determine whether or not it's valid and trustworthy, when a doctrine or a principle is under question and we're trying to determine whether or not it's true or whether or not it's valid or whether or not we should do it, the Scriptures alone have the final say to determine the truthfulness of a thing. That's what the Reformers were battling for. Sola Scriptura means that the Scriptures alone serve as the final source of binding authority not the church, and not the traditions of men. How did the Roman Catholic Church respond to this? Well, not only did the Roman Catholic Church respond to that in that particular day, but even to this day, if you were to go to the Vatican website and you were to look up the catechism for the Roman Catholic Church, you would see that not only do they still hold to the very same principles they held back then, but they have doubled down in their language to distance themselves from the views of Protestant Reformation ideas. Here's a statement. Uh, the, the catechism of the Roman Catholic Church claims that divine revelation comes in two modes of transmission, sacred scripture and holy tradition. Article 82 of that catechism says, as a result, the church to whom the transmission and interpretation of Revelation is entrusted. That is a really important phrase. They are claiming that the transmission of Scripture came to them, and therefore interpretation of Revelation has been entrusted to them alone. It goes on and it says, uh, this does not derive, the church does not derive her certainty about all revealed truths from the holy scriptures alone. Both scripture and tradition must be accepted and honored with equal sentiments of devotion and reverence. So where the reformers are saying, no, it's scripture alone, the Catholic church doubles down and says, no, it's not scripture alone. So much has not changed with regard to to this division. Furthermore, in article 100, we read this. This is from the Roman Catholic Catechism. The task of interpreting the Word of God authentically has been entrusted solely to the magisterium of the church, that is, to the pope and to the bishops in communion with him. Now, some of you didn't know that about the Roman Catholic Church. Many of you already knew that about the Roman Catholic Church. But this is the difference between a Protestant understanding of the authority of Scripture alone and where the Catholic Church stands. If you want to know what God says, you've got to come to us because we're the only ones entrusted with the knowledge to interpret it rightly. That is still their catechism to this day. This is what the Reformers were up against as they read the Bible in that newly introduced Greek text produced by Erasmus they found that the Catholic Church's traditions and practices were greatly at odds with God's Word. And the question is, what source of authority were the people to trust? The Word or the Church? Well, here's, here's John Calvin's position on this. He said this, Let this be a firm principle. No other word is to be held as the Word of God and given place as such in the Church than what is contained first in the Law and the Prophets, And then in the writings of the apostles. And the only authorized way of teaching in the church is by the prescription and standard of his word. The the Catholic church believes that ultimate authority is something of a shared responsibility between the word and the tradition, the Roman Catholic church. But the reformers taught that ultimate authority rests in the Word alone. Here's another quote from Calvin on this. He says, The difference between us and the papists is that they believe that the church cannot be the pillar of the truth unless she presides over the Word of God. We, on the other hand, assert that it is because she reverently subjects herself to the Word of God that the truth is preserved by her and passed on to others by her hands. I know this may seem really academic to you. Maybe it doesn't. This is why we do what we do. This is our position. Not that we get to determine what is truth and we uphold that, but God reveals his truth to us. And our value, our rightness as a church is when we uphold the truth that God has revealed. So what does this look like in practice? Well, I'm going to go back to Calvin's life now. So during his first little stint in Geneva, when he's ruffled a bunch of feathers and they asked him to leave, The city wanted reformation, but they didn't want a whole lot of reformation. The more he preached the word of God, the more people got unsure about these reformation ideas. He preached against the sins of the leaders in the city, and he found himself on the road. He spent the next three years in Strasbourg, Germany. He married a widow uh, with two children. Um, He lost several children. When they were very young, in infancy, his wife actually died. It was pretty sad that period of time in his life. But by 1541, the climate in Geneva had changed. Reformation teaching was becoming more accepted. Some of those old members of the city council had died off, and so the city reached out to Calvin and asked him to come back to return to the post as the pastor for the church in Geneva. And I mean, just human ideas alone, you're thinking, well, man, he's going to give it to him with both barrels now, right? I mean, they asked him to leave, and now he's the one that's proven right. The, the winds of change have come and shown that he was doing the right thing, and now he's going to come back. What's he going to say? Is he going to wag his finger at the people in the pews? What is he going to do? Well, Calvin, on that particular day, his first day back in the pulpit at the church in Geneva, he walked up the stairs and he opened up the Bible and he picked up in the, the verse that he had left off from three years prior. He just continued to preach the Bible. In other words, putting into practice what he believed with his life that the Scriptures alone are the final authority. It didn't matter what his agenda might be. didn't matter what had happened in the past. What we needed to hear most, what the people needed to hear most was the Word of God. And so he just picked up, and he continued to preach through God's Word as if nothing had changed. He was a man committed to the simple teaching of the Word of God. He was not a man with a personal agenda per se. He was a man committed to the authority of God's Word alone. And there's a lot more that we could say, I could say, about Calvin. There's a lot more that we could say about the doctrines that came out of the Reformation. But I want to try to summarize this and bring it to a point of emphasis here. I want to ask a question. What does this doctrine of sola scriptura mean for the church today? Obviously it means we're still committed to the clear, simple, expository teaching of the Word of God. But our day has changed. The climate of our culture is different. What does that look like? How can we be faithful to a principle that we believe is true and just and right in today's climate? Well, I'll give you some of my thoughts, but I'm going to start by giving you a quote from Michael Reeves. He offers an answer to this question. He says to, to us that he reminds us that preaching is a human act, and as such, it is a fallible act. Preaching is not the Word of God in the same way that the Bible is the Word of God. Preaching is an administration of God's Word. It is an extension or an application of God's revelation in Jesus testified in Scripture rather than a second or rival source of revelation. So all preaching must be weighed according to the standard of God's infallible Word. You don't believe something simply because I say it or some other preacher says it, or some podcaster says it. Just because a person has a platform does not mean that what they have to say is true, and you should believe it and stake your life on it. The sole authority and the value of what comes out of my mouth still relies upon whether or not it is consistent with the Word of God. God has chosen and commanded that the church, that preachers, preach His Word, that we uphold the Word of God, that we declare the Word of God, that we preach it and teach it and use it to grow the church, meaning grow in depth and knowledge and understanding. It is a tool of discipleship for us. And and He has called fallible men to do this. Today, if you know a little bit about what's going on within the culture of evangelicals. I don't even know that the term evangelical means much anymore. When I generally refer to that term, I'm referring to individuals who believe in the authority of the Scriptures and the sufficiency of the Scriptures and are committed to that in their life and ministry. But I don't know that that's necessarily true anymore. Evangelical has a different connotation with it but there are trends within what we might call evangelical Christianity where people are relying more on human wisdom than the plain teaching of God's word it is more often the case that if you go to a new church you will not find someone opening the bible and teaching verse by verse through books of the bible you will find something else Maybe the Bible is used as kind of a springboard to, for the pastor to say whatever he feels like he needs to say on a given Sunday. Relying on human wisdom, not the plain teaching of God's Word. Our culture more and more demands entertainment, experience. I've had good friends of mine say, well, I, I need a preacher who can tell a good joke. I wish I could tell good jokes, but that's not my commitment. Whether you laugh or not, I want you to walk from this place each Sunday with the Word of God and the Gospel dwelling on your heart and in your mind and motivating you to be faithful to the calling that God has placed upon your life. But our our culture demands preachers who will entertain and and offer an experience. It demands preachers who will affirm desires for self-fulfillment, for self-importance or self-realization. And the preaching of the Word has a very different effect than those things. The preaching of the Word reveals the holy nature and perfect character and unrivaled truth of God. It reveals the sinful selfishness of the human heart. It reveals our desperate need of Christ. Where our minds and our hearts get turned up around certain ideas and thoughts that are floating around in culture, we come to the Scriptures, and the Scriptures lays those ideas bare. It becomes the standard, the ruler, the measuring tool to determine whether or not those ideas are true or valid, whether or not we should listen to them or dismiss them, because the Bible is still the final authority for the life and practice of the people of God. Modern sensibilities cause people to say things like they want to unhitch the Christianity of today from God's Word or from history or from the Old Testament. Men and women seek to elevate experience or preference as the ultimate authority rather than the plain teaching of the Word. And that's why Sola Scriptura matters for us today. Because the thoughts in our hearts, the instincts of our hearts, the desires within our hearts need to be brought back to conformity with God's Word, and that's not going to happen unless the Word of God is rightly administered, preached, and committed to. So the church, as a church, here's what we need to do. We need to embrace that the Word of God is the thing we need to hear most on a consistent basis. The Scriptures alone are the supreme authority over our faith and practice as Christians. Neither emotion, experience, nor preference should rival God's truth in our hearts. Here's another quote from Michael Reeves. He says, The Bible is not just true. It is truer than anything else. So the Bible always trumps experience. And that does not mean that we ignore experience. Experience will often give rise to questions. But we are to bring those questions to Scripture. Christ still reigns through His Word, read and preached. So we need to work hard to ensure that our lives and our life together are ruled not by tradition, not by experience, but by Christ through His Word. Yes and amen. We need to understand that our responsibility as a church is to allow the light of the Word to shine into the darkness of our own hearts and then make its way into our home and then out into the culture around us. We are still called to be salt and light. We must be a people who are committed to allowing the Word of God to dwell in us richly, to guide us, direct us, and correct us. So, we all know this to be true, but I'll say it. Calvin was not a perfect man. But he understood that the glory of God was more important than anything else. And he was convinced, as am I, that God's glory is most clearly seen when the word of God is honored and proclaimed. So this is our commitment as a church. No matter the cultural climate, no matter the threats to life that came for Calvin or may come for us, no matter the wicked sensibility within the hearts of the hearers or the effect that it might have on people, Calvin preached the word of God in season and out of season, and that's our commitment as well. So here's my final question How will God use you? I mean, John Calvin was a brilliant man, he was a a diligent student of so many different things, but he was also a man willing to be used by God. What about you? These men, these men that we study year in and year out, we've been doing this for about a dozen years now. These men that we study and these doctrines that we study, these were mere men that God raised up and strengthened and used at a critical time in the life of the history of the world, but specifically the church. And now we look back on their lives and we are encouraged, motivated, spurred on in our own day, hopefully, to take up the mantle of faithfulness. So my question is, how might you be raised up by God to bear the light of the gospel in our own dark days? How might you be one of those who are willing to be faithful and bold in hard places for the sake of Christ? We are not just a reformed church. We are always being reformed by the word of God. And our world and the culture that we live in needs the light of the truth of God's word. So who's going to step up and take it to them? When you hear of these men and women from the past and how God used them, my hope is that you too would be spurred on to dream about and surrender your life to be used by God in the days that you have. So let me pray for you and ask for God to stir us up in that way. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the time to look at portions of your word together as a people and to understand them and to explain them and even to see in the example an illustration of a man's life and the doctrine that comes out of it to be encouraged and spurred on, to understand what our role is as a pillar and a buttress of the truth. Father, help us to be faithful to your word. Help me to be faithful to your word, to preach it in season and out of season, and to trust wholly in its authority and to expect that it will accomplish your purpose as it is preached and read and taught and even sung. And Lord, I pray for us as a church that you would continue to stir up in us a desire to be faithful among our young people. I am amazed that Calvin was so young when you got a hold of him and he was able to write with such clarity about the things of God. I pray for our young men and women that that same fire of gospel expediency would, would burn in them, that they would have that desire to take your truth out into the world, to make known the gospel for the glory of God. And I pray that you would use them mightily in that effort in our community. And I pray for us as a church, that we could be that, that's somewhat of that city on a hill, that you wouldn't take our lampstand away, that we could allow the light of the gospel, a light, the light of your word to shine into the hearts of your people and to affect wily for the sake of Christ. Lord, would you do that in us? Would you do that through us? We give you all the glory for it. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.